Last time, we talked about collecting data and how you should go about that and what kind of measures should you use. But now that you have all of this data, what are you supposed to do with it? What kind of analysis should you run? What are the kinds of questions that you can answer with the data you have? These are all the types of things that we're going to be talking about today. We're going to cover a little bit about the statistics you might use, what are the tools we commonly use to do these analyses, and some of the pitfalls that you should avoid. I'm Jose Espinoza. I'm Nicholas Bremner. And you're listening to Mind Your Work. A podcast about social science and work, and what happens when you put these two things together. Welcome to the second part of our series on data literacy. Today, we're going to be specifically talking about how to analyze your data. And we're going to start off talking a little bit about some of the more complex parts of what seems like the most complex issue at the beginning, and that's what analytical methods and techniques you might use when you're trying to analyze your data. Where do you usually start here, Nick? Where do you think is the first place to go when you start thinking about analyzing your data? So when I think about analyzing data, I think about all the different statistics techniques I've learned throughout grad school. And I, I actually think that we learn stats the wrong way in school. Oh, interesting. Okay. I, I think that if you've taken like an undergrad stats class or even to a lesser extent, I think grad stats classes. No, I think it kind of flipped in, in graduate school. In undergrad, they teach you about different statistical techniques like ANOVA, like T-test, like correlations. And what they do is they make you do all the math. They tell you generally what the technique does, but then they make you memorize formulas and calculate these things out by hand. And, and they say, show your work on the exam. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and I think that this is helpful to an extent, but I also think it scares a lot of people away from statistics. And I think that we should kind of teach in the opposite direction. We should, we should start by asking, what is, the, what is the question you want to answer? Like, for example, do you want to know if A and B are related? Do you want to know if, you know, job performance and absenteeism are related? You know, if you show up for work every day, are you, are you doing a better job? Like, yeah, probably. Do you want to know if group A is different than group B? If, if sales team A is performing better than sales team B, we're doing a comparison. I think it's very important to start with a, a question like that, like a real life example, and then ask students well, what's the most appropriate technique to apply to answer this question? I think that's how we should teach it. Worry about the math a little bit later. I think it's important to understand the mechanics behind that, but I think that's really where we should start. This, this is where you should start when you, before you even collect data. Like you've got to have a very clear research question. You've got to, you've got to formulate a hypothesis. But then when applying a, a statistical technique, you've got to think, okay, well, what's the question I'm trying to answer? Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's kind of where we started our the first part of this series. We said, well, first of all, before you collect any data, think about, well, what do you want to ask? What is the question you want answered? And I think you're totally right. And maybe this is going to sound a little bit repetitive to our listeners, but we keep coming back to this because this is this thing that should kind of anchor everything about your project. You should think about it the entire time through. Exactly. You should, you should try and keep that as your North Star and think about it every step of the way. You should think about this if you're doing your own analysis, if you're going to say, okay, I have this data set now, and how should we analyze this data to get the answers we're interested in? We should also think about that if you're evaluating someone else's analysis, if you're evaluating results that are being presented to you, you should always think about, well, did they collect the data appropriately? That's one question. And two, in terms of what we're interested in answering, 
are they using the right kind of analysis? Does the analysis fit the question? So what are some quick examples of, you know, a mismatch? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, the the one I think that is important for us to touch on, and then I, I'm sure most people have heard this, is the correlation does not equal causation. I mean, we could use an example of, of training. So diversity training is something that's really commonly done in organizations. Um, I think it's you know an important thing for organizations to focus on and, and send a message that you know, diversity and inclusion are, are important, obviously. Um, but if someone wants to make the argument that a, a given diversity training causes more inclusive behavior at work, and the evidence they provide you for that is, look, people who took the training are now behaving more inclusively. That's tempting to believe if the training, if the, if the purpose of the training is to, is to improve people's acceptance of, of diverse you know, viewpoints. But it's still correlational in the sense that you could have a selection bias for people who even sign up for the training. If the training is voluntary, we might have people who are actually more interested in learning more about diversity and inclusion signing up for this training. So you have a selection bias in the first place. Um, so it's still very much correlational. You can't you know, definitively say that the training caused more inclusive behavior. And that's something that I think we're going to touch on a little bit later in the topics where we talk about the techniques in the sense that, well, how do you establish causality? Because I think ultimately, especially at work, when we're interested in changing something and improving things, we're often very interested in answering the question, well, did one thing cause the other? So I think for this part, the main takeaway we want you to think about is that, well, you want to know whether the right tool is being applied to answer the question that you're interested in. And that's a bit of a difficult thing unless you know what the question is first. So formulate a really good question so then you can find the appropriate technique. So for this, this next section, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the, the commonly used tools to analyze data. And instead of diving into the math behind these tools, which, which can be important to know if you're really working with them frequently to understand what they do, we're going to talk about what kinds of questions can be answered with these different techniques. There are many, many, many different kinds of techniques. And frankly, they get quite complex. Um, but one of the things that we want to point out is that necessarily the complexity of a technique doesn't mean that it's more useful. Sometimes a simpler technique, a more straightforward statistical method is actually the right way to answer a question. So you shouldn't equate in your mind kind of sophistication in terms of com and complexity of the technique with the ability to answer the question. So we're going to talk about this in some very general categories. And the first one we're going to start with is descriptive statistics. I think it's really important to make the distinction between descriptive stats and inferential stats. So just to kind of set the stage briefly, Descriptive stats basically describe the way data are. Inferential stats help us understand a potential relationship between two concepts, two groups. They give us a sense of if there is or is not a difference between something. An example would be for descriptive stats, a, a mean is an example of a descriptive statistic. You could apply an inferential statistical technique like a t-test to actually test to see if two different means or two different averages are actually significantly different from one another. That's what people are talking about when they use the term statistical significance. 
So you just mentioned when we talk about descriptive stats, what are we referring to? Averages and means is one of the really common ones, but there are lots of other different kinds of descriptive stats that are actually really informative when you're looking at your data right at the beginning. And even to answer some questions, they're really good at giving you a baseline. So if you're interested in how many we have of a certain thing in this data set, frequencies is one really good way of doing that. That's really informative. Also, minimum and, and, and maximum and modes and range, all of those are really useful things, even though they sound really simple, uh, even though they sound like you learned them in grade school and they don't have much use beyond, you know, passing a couple of tests in high school. They're actually really important for us to understand what is happening our, with our data at a very base level. A helpful way of thinking about and, and organizing all the different types of descriptive stats there are is to think about it in terms of measures of central tendency. Mean is the, the quintessential descriptive stat for this, just kind of tells you where the data are, are centering. Then you've got measures of variability. So it, des- it describes in a, in a whole collection of scores, you could have a, a, an average, but everyone could have the same score and there's no variability. So measures of variability describe, you know, how, how is this data actually distributed? You know, is there, is there a huge diverse array of scores? And so stats like standard deviation and variance are really commonly used, but in practice, they're, they're kind of hard for people to interpret, I would say, especially with, without formal training. You know, we, we calculated a lot of standard deviations and, and, and variance in, in uh, stats class, but many people don't know these formulas and they're kind of hard to, to interpret, especially depending on the unit of the variable you're talking about, like the, the unit of variable, like how, how we're actually measuring things, if it's, if it's dollars, if it's a uh, survey scale. The standard deviation is affected by that. So it's there's no like rule of thumb for interpreting a higher low standard deviation. You just kind of have to understand the data, which is, I think, partially why it's hard to interpret. I, th- I think a third one that's interesting to talk about that kind of combines measures of central tendency and variability um, or, or helps describe the variability in the data is something that's really commonly used in, in IOPsych and especially among survey vendors is percentage favorability. This is... I don't necessarily love this kind of descriptive stat, but it it is useful for certain applications. So what many survey vendors do is they will divide scores that people people provide on on surveys. Let's say you have a a five-point scale. They'll divide it. They'll they'll chunk out the responses into percent of people who responded unfavorably, percent who responded in a neutral manner, and percent who responded favorably. So they'll, they'll chunk out like one and two to unfavorable, three to neutral, and four or five to favorable. And so... So sorry, when you think about this in a five-point scale, this is a scale that maybe goes from, I really don't like this thing to I really like this thing, or you know I strongly disagree to strongly agree. So you get a cluster of people who disagree, a, closer, a cluster of people who don't either agree or disagree, and then you get the cluster of people who agree, right? You get kind of a, you take the five points and you make it into three points. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, that's a great way of describing it. Um, and so this kind of gives you a sense of, of the average a little bit, but it also gives you a sense of the, the distribution of the scores without actually having to resort to using standard deviation, which is a little harder to interpret. Yeah. And, and th- this is, I think, a really useful practical application um, because it's much easier for people you might be presenting the data to to absorb what these three groups in very, you know, air quotes uh, are and how they might be responding to the items. And then it's for them to maybe think about on a five-point scale or a seven-point scale or an even broader scale, depending on what your survey items are. I think it's a really useful technique in that regard and on how to present data. Something to, to worry about here is that whenever you do any smushing together of different points, you are losing detail. You're losing 
all of mm-hmm. the additional nuance that might have come from you having those first five points in the first place, right? There, there should have been distinctions conceptually on how people answered, you know, I strongly disagree to disagree. If you're just going to cluster these things together into, a, you know, a single one to two cluster of, you know, disagree people, you're losing some of that, that detail, right? So that is something to keep in mind. I think a really good example of that, that I think a lot of people will identify with is the net promoter score indicator. This is like the, the measure of customer satisfaction or, or basically customers' willingness to refer a, a product or a service to other people. Um, it's, it's the question, you know, a scale from zero to 10, how likely are you re- to recommend, you know, product X to friends or family or whatever? And what the way this is calculated in, in the back end is they chunk, they, they, they put people into categories, essentially. So people who are, who answer nine or 10 are considered promoters. People who are going to, you know, really tell people about your product, they're, they're your champions. People who are seven or eight are neutrals or passives. Um, people who are like, yeah, this is pretty cool, but I'm, I'm probably not going to, you know, go shut it from the rooftops. And then everyone below that six to zero are considered detractors. And that, that's a huge group to collapse. Yeah. And this is kind of one of the reasons why I don't necessarily love the way NPS is, is calculated um, is that you're losing a lot of, you know, potential variability there. You're losing a lot of detail. I think the, the way you described it is, is the best. I think someone who answers zero is probably feeling quite different about the product than someone who answers five or six, but they put everyone in that category when they calculate that metric. Um, so that's kind of, a, I, I think the most extreme example I can think of, of, you know, putting people into categories and losing a lot of variability there. So that is something to kind of watch out for. And so I think, and and you might disagree, Nick, here's descriptive stats in general, even though we always talk about, oh, you know, you should consider the question that you're asking and then match your analysis to that. I think descriptive stats are such a good set of statistics that you should almost always calculate them. You should almost always get your mean, your your standard deviation, potentially frequencies, depending on what the, the actual variable is. If you want to get a sense of what the data looks like, right? If, if you want to get a sense of maybe you want to calculate frequencies because you want to see if you have most people answering, you know, at one very extreme point of the scale in your survey. Descriptive mm-hmm. statistics are, like Nick said, they describe the data and they can be very informative even before you, you go and test any of your questions and try to determine where you can get the answers to that. Yeah, they're, they're really helpful for determining if something went wrong when you're coding your data too. Like if there was a data entry error or if just something was you know incorrectly calculated. Um, yeah. So it, it's an important first step before you do any other analysis. Just look at your data, visualize it, get a sense of you know what's going on. What does the distribution look like? Do you have any, any outliers, any people who responded totally different from anyone else? Um, sometimes that outlier could be real. Sometimes it could be a coding error. Sometimes it could be something else. So... It's, it's really important to do that. So in terms of what questions we can answer with descriptive stats, what are, what are some examples here that we can, we can cover? So without doing any comparisons, any actual statistical significance tests, I think one of the main things you can do with descriptive stats is to understand your data, like we just said, and then to see if those scores have changed over time if you're doing multiple measurements. So now, whether those differences are significant, we'll get to that in the future. But if you do a training and you measure people's you know, engagement like we were talking about earlier before and after the training, descriptive stats are going to be able to give you a general idea of whether as a group, if you're looking at the average engagement score you know, before and after the training for that group, 
did, did that go up like it should? Or did it say the same or did it go down? Description statistics are, are, are pretty good at that, right? They give you a one or two numbers every time, depending on what you're using. You can use to make some general judgments. Yeah, I think that's I think that's true. I mean, you can answer a, a lot of questions with descriptive stats. I think you just need to test if those differences or if those questions you're answering are, are you know, real or not with the inferential stats, right? You can visualize your data and, and answer the question, is group A bigger than group B? I mean, for, for certain things, I mean, like for frequencies, you can tell if group A is bigger than group B. If group A consists of 100 people, group B consists of 10. It's like, you know, obviously those groups are different sizes. When it comes to different things that involve measurement error, that's when inferential stats are, are really important, especially in, like in psychology, to determine like if engagement scores for employees, group A is more engaged than group B. You can see the difference just by looking at the different means. But in order to actually test that difference to see if it's significant or if it's due to chance, that's when we bring in inferential stats. But if the difference is so large, sometimes you don't need to test it. Like if you have a thousand responses and the differences are, are so major, you have enough statistical power, which we talked a little bit about in, in the last episode, you got enough people and the differences are so large, sometimes you don't even need to to run a t-test, which is what you do there to check between two different group means. So, so let's talk about some of those inferential techniques. And we're, and we're going to focus just on two because there are so many, um, but mostly the we're going to talk about correlations, measure of association, and t-tests, which we can use to compare groups. Yeah. So most commonly, if you look at a lot of psychological research, especially survey-based research, we rely on correlations quite a bit. And correlations are very straightforward. All that we're interested in is finding out, are these two things related or unrelated? And how strong is that relationship if it's there, right? And potentially, we might be really interested in finding out if we have an idea beforehand, what direction is that relationship in? So when I talk about that, what I mean is you might be looking at, uh, I think a really funny example of this I always bring up is the rise in ice cream sales and shark attacks. It's very possible that when we look at, at the data, we can see that basically as ice cream sales go up, so do shark attacks. So what we're seeing here is that these two things are associated in the sense that they're strongly related to each other. Basically, whenever you get an increase maybe of one unit in ice cream sales in the thousands, you maybe get one more shark attack. And that's a pretty steady increase when we look at multiple data points, multiple measurements of this thing. And that relationship is positive in the sense that it's basically as one goes up, the other goes up. This could be the other way, right? It could also happen that as, as maybe as ice cream sales go up, people are actually not swimming, therefore shark attacks go down, right? So there are fewer chances for sharks to attack people. Um, so that would be an, an understanding of the direction of this relationship. And that's all that a correlation tells you. Are these things associated? If so, how strongly associated are they? And in what direction is that relationship working? And it's worth noting, I think two things. The, the first thing is, I don't know how that became the quintessential example <laughs> it's, it's a spurious correlation as well, which is important to note here. Could you explain what that is for a second? It's, it's spurious in the sense that it's, it's due to chance. It, it's because of summertime, right? Like ice cream sales go up in the summer and because people are out, they want ice cream. And then people are also swimming in the summer. So the more people in the water, the more chances that someone will get attacked by a shark, you know, in certain places, right? So there's there's a third variable there that's that's affecting both of these stats, ice cream sales and shark attacks. And so it's not that one causes the other. And, and that's the thing we want to keep in mind when we talk about a correlation. It's a measure of association. It means that these two things are related somehow, 
But that relationship doesn't necessarily have to be reasonable or real in the sense that it actually means that there's something underlying this relationship that makes sense. Like Nick was saying, what really probably is happening is that both of these things happen more during the summertime. And that third variable actually makes this correlation probably moot. It's probably not very informative in the sense it's not going to help us answer a question in in a real way, in a way that we could do something about, right? We're not going to stop selling ice cream because we want to reduce shark attacks, right? So that's the main thing to remember. Correlation does not equal causation. And that's all that we're referring to. These two things might be associated with each other, but you probably want to have a really good idea of why they would be associated with each other before you make any, any claims as to what that relationship is. So why don't we use an example here that's more related to, to HR or psychology? Like, let's think about the correlation between employee engagement, which is a motivational state. It's, you know, someone coming to work with, with energy, they're dedicated to their job, they're, they tend to get absorbed in their work and job performance. There is a positive correlation between job performance and work engagement right? These two things are associated. If we really want to understand this correlation, like why does it exist? There's different theories that we can use to kind of understand, you know, why this is the case. So for instance, if we think about theories of work motivation, um, engagement is a motivational construct. Part of what causes job performance is motivation, right? You need to be motivated in order to perform your job. So that's one reason how engagement could potentially cause job performance. On the flip side, there's also evidence to, to suggest that when you are successful at something, when you are competent in something, you are more motivated to continue doing that. So in that sense, job performance is causing work engagement. You're more motivated because you're doing well. So this is an example of, of a correlation where we have kind of a du dual causality. They're both kind of affecting each other. And I'm using theory here, which is like an intuitive explanation for why these things are related. But you can actually test this using experiments to, to prove or, or provide, a, provide evidence for um, how one thing causes the other. So, so I think a good rule of thumb is that if you're using an inferential technique like the correlation, even though you might come in with this question and saying, well, does you know, employee engagement lead to, more to greater job performance? What you want to do when you get your correlation is, well, can I explain this correlation the other way? Can I explain it with theory that basically is counter to the way that I came in to trying to understand this correlation? If you can, then you probably need to set up another kind of experiment or another kind of study to test whether this is a causal relationship. So just keep that in mind. Correlations can be very informative. They tell you about the, how strong a relationship is and what direction it might be, whether it's positive or negative. But ultimately, you can't establish causality using them. No, you cannot. And as we alluded to before, there are you know third variables or other factors that could play a role. Like for instance, in, in the engagement job performance relationship, maybe there's a personality trait that correlates with both of those things. That's actually explaining the relationship. You know, more conscientious people um, tend to be more engaged and tend to do better at their jobs, just, just as a hypothetical example. So that's another thing that you've got to consider. And this is what this is why running experiments is really the only true way to demonstrate causality, which I think is, is, is worth talking about here too. So, so the second technique we're going to talk about here is t-test. And we've covered t-test before. And basically, this is useful in the sense that it allows us to compare two groups and see if that difference between these two groups, usually on a mean, is that significantly different. And significantly different, all you need to know for now is that essentially when you run a t-test, you're able to determine whether this difference is greater than would be reasonable to find due to chance. Can we say if this was just a... If we did this a whole bunch of times, most of the time we would find that this difference exists. 
It's kind of a complicated concept, but all that we're interested in knowing is, can we have some degree of confidence that what we're finding this difference between these two groups, maybe one is scoring two points higher on our engagement measure than the other, is the difference most of the time going to be actually a true difference? One example where you might use a t-test is if you're interested in finding out whether your new recruits, people who are just joining the company, are performing as well or maybe worse than your job incumbents, people who have been around a long time. So maybe you'll collect data on the job performance of people who have been at the company for six months or less, or maybe a year or less, and people who have been at the, uh, the company for 10 years or more. And you'll do basically, you'll take these people's job performance scores, you'll conduct a t-test, and you'll see, well, is there a significant difference? Now, you could imagine going into this question with a really clear idea of what you would expect to happen, right? Well, we would expect that maybe people who have been at their job longer have more experience in doing the job or more used to the procedures we use at this company and probably perform better as a result. That's a testable question that you could use a t-test for. Yeah, or, or a related question that you may want to answer is how long does it actually take a new recruit to get up to speed and perform at the same level as one of your more experienced employees? You know, is it two months? Is it three months? Is it, is it a full year? This is an important question to answer if you want to, you know, understand um, how long can we expect someone to, to fully ramp up and be a fully contributing um, employee in the organization. Yeah. And, and you can imagine all of the implications that has for your organization, right? It has huge implications for something like succession planning, because if we know it takes someone at least, you know, two years to get up to speed in this really high level exec position, then probably we want to start our succession planning quite early on, right? Making sure that people are getting up to speed in that process earlier than before, rather than just throwing them into this position, knowing we're going to get a huge uh, decrease in performance because they're just getting used to all the stuff that they're supposed to be doing in this new position. Yeah, exactly. So in, in practice, what that would look like with the t-test is, for example, you could measure performance at one month and let's say performance at one month is a score of three. Um, and we know that our experienced employees have a score of six. So we're comparing, okay, start out as a three or a six, maybe two, three years in. What is someone's score at one year? It might be a four. So they're not quite up to, to speed with more experienced employees, but they're they're on their way. Basically, performance is increasing over time. And the t-test will actually give you a sense of if four is significantly different from six or if three is significantly different from four, um, rather than just kind of describing the data and, and eyeballing it and saying, yeah, those, those numbers seem pretty different. It actually gives you a statistical indication of the, the real difference there. Um, it, that's not due to chance, basically. So when it comes to inferential techniques, what are, what are some things to avoid, Nick? Yeah, I think a, a really good thing to watch out for um, that I've actually found really tough communicating to people in the past. So I'll, I'll try here, but statistical significance is not the same thing as the size of the difference or the size of the, the effect. So like if we're looking at performance differences between groups, you can have a statistically significant difference between the numbers four and 4.1 if your group sizes are large enough. So all statistical significance tells you is if that difference is a real difference and not due to chance. It doesn't directly tell you the size of the difference or if that difference is actually meaningful or not. We could collect data on a million employees in one group and another million in a second group. And I guarantee you four and 4.1 or four and 4.0 five are going to be statistically significantly different, right? But that that difference in practice is, is not meaningful. It's not really going to matter. So what we do bring in in that case is, is measures of effect size, um, which is a 
separate but related concept that tells you how big the actual difference is. And I think something that you said there that's really important is you need to make a distinction between something that is statistically significantly different, so significant difference, and practical significance, right? Is this change something that's actually going to make a meaningful difference in terms of what we care about for this question? So like if we talked about, we go back to our example of how long does it take to get our new employees to perform at the same level as our incumbents? At what point do we say they're close enough? And that could be a judgment that you make internally, right? You say, well, we have a 10-point scale so long as our, our as our new recruits can get to, you know, a 9 um, out of 10, which we have most of our incumbents on 10, then we're good. Or maybe you think, actually, 8 out of 10 is good enough for us to feel comfortable that they're performing at a, at a level that is about the same, right? So you need to start thinking about how do you quantify those differences and at what point do they mean something to you? This is a kind of a really complicated concept, and that's what we talked about. It's hard to communicate to others, but you should always think about not only are these things different in terms of the statistical tests that we're doing, but are they meaningfully different? Are they something that we actually care about? Otherwise, you might end up in a place where you end up finding lots of differences that in practice won't really make any changes in terms of how things are actually going at your workplace. Yeah, and that's why domain expertise is, is so important. Like, I mean, if we use another example, like um, monthly sales. You need to know the industry. You need to know the, the kind of product you're selling and how much monthly sales for an employee varies month over month. Because there are other factors that can contribute to how much someone sells. A very high-performing employee, let's say, may make plus or minus $5,000 each month. So let's say they make an average of $30,000, but that could be $25,000 or could be $35,000 every month. If you're looking at training for a, a new sales recruit, they could get up to the point of making 20,000 consistently per month. They're not quite at 30,000, but you kind of have to make a judgment call. Like when is that new recruit performing at the level of a more ex experienced sales professional, given that the sales figures vary month over month, they vary seasonally. They vary depending on the, the region that person's working in. So there's a lot of factors to consider. It's, it's, it's not a, not a simple question to answer. So a couple other things to avoid that we have already talked about is being careful of things like spurious correlations due to a third variable problem, right? So the idea that there might be something that you're not measuring, something that you're not looking at that actually explains the relationship that you're finding. And this could happen in correlations uh, in terms of summer ice cream sales and shark attacks, like we said. And it could even happen with T-tests, right? So even though you might be interested in doing a pre-test and a post-test when it comes to training employees, for example, you might want to watch out for figuring out if there is maybe a third explanation there, right? For example, a typical a typical intro, introduction of psychology example of this are the Hawthorne studies, where we conducted a whole bunch of studies where we observed people in factories. And basically, experimenters found that no matter what they did, turned the lights brighter, they made the lights dimmer, they you know added water coolers, et cetera, performance went up. And really, ultimately, what was happening is because people were being observed, because we were doing something, we were intervening in some way, performance was changing. So you always want to think about, are there other variables or other explanations that might actually be the reason why I'm finding these differences in my data? Yeah. Another factor to consider is that just the passage of time can also affect the, what you're measuring. So for instance, if you're looking at performance over time and you give one group training and you don't give another group training, you may find that the performance of both groups goes up simply because both groups are practicing the job or the task and they're just naturally getting better at it irrespective of whether they receive training or not. Beyond correlations and t-tests, um, there are uh, there's a whole universe of other statistical techniques. But I think without getting into to too much detail, the way we can probably explain it is that if you have a certain question, 
there are more sophisticated techniques that can answer more sophisticated versions of that question. So if we want to understand the association between more than two variables, um, understand uh, more complex relationships, uh, there's a whole family of you know statistical techniques that are, are regression-based, multiple linear regression and, and uh, logistic regression and, and a whole bunch of other stuff like that. But they all answer the same kind of core question, like, is there an association between these variables? Similarly to group differences, we can also look at the differences between more than two groups using a technique like an ANOVA. So I can imagine a hypothetical listener out there right now who has been very patiently sitting through us explaining all of these descriptive statistics and this inferential techniques that you might use. And still, we haven't told them how we can find out if one thing causes the other. Yeah, so I mean, the the key thing to remember here is that if you want to demonstrate that something causes something else, the most foolproof way to do that is to run a true experiment. That's like the, the Cadillac of proving that something causes something else. Designing a good experiment is quite difficult, and you should always maybe look for the expertise from someone else or gain the expertise yourself to do these right. But if we were going to give you kind of a a four-point starter kit to start setting up experiments appropriately so you can start making causal judgments and causal inferences from your data, you should make sure you have an intervention. You should make sure you have a control group. You should make sure that you do random assignment and that you do pre and post testing. And we're going to briefly cover each of those individually. Yeah, so if you have a manipulation or an intervention, you're basically doing something that is rooted in theory should cause some kind of effect. Um, That's like a training is a really simple example. In medical research, that's giving some kind of vaccination or providing some kind of medical treatment. Anything that you expect to elicit the effect that you're expecting to see. And you should make sure whatever that intervention is, you have an idea as to what effect it should have, right? So you don't want to just try something. You want to make sure that you have a Pre-existing theory is what we would say in academia, yep. but you should basically have a reason for doing this, right? You, you assume this thing is going to make a difference, and usually it's going to make a difference in, in the direction that you want it to, right? If we're interested in improving employee engagement, whatever our training is, it should probably be focused on that, right? We have an idea as to why this should make that difference. It should increase engagement because of X. So the second bit that you should make sure you do is you should make sure you set up both a control group and a treatment group. And like we said before, when you have an intervention, you're going to be administering this to a part of your sample, a part of the people that are involved in your experiment. But you should also maintain a part of the sample completely untouched. There should be a group that you have as a comparison. They're the people who are kind of the baseline that you're going to be able to use to determine whether your intervention made a difference. Exactly. And ideally, your treatment and control groups should be similar, which leads us to the third important thing, which is random assignment. Um, We want to make sure that you assign these people the treatment and control groups in a completely random fashion so that your groups end up looking the same in terms of all the different variables in the universe. Basically, the the way experiments work is that there are so many different factors that could interfere or contaminate the the, the result you're expecting, whether it's age, whether it's gender, whether it's the the color of clothing someone's wearing. It could be anything. We, We can't model everything. So the way that scientists get around this is by randomly assigning people to to groups. And the idea is that all of the different confounding factors or contaminating factors are going to cancel each other out if you have enough people who are sufficiently randomly assigned to these two different groups. That's why random assignments are critical. 
the fourth point is pre-post-test, basically taking a measure before and after your intervention. So you have a sense of where people started and where people ended up, and you compare A to B. And you do this both for your control group and your intervention group. That way you get a sense as well. Like we talked about, maybe job performance just goes up over time. We'll now be able to tell that whether that's just also happening for the control group. And ultimately, we're kind of straying from the, the topic of stats here, um, even though experiments are you know, a, a part of it. Uh, but I think it's, it's something that's probably worth covering in a, in a future episode where we can chat about the, the nature of experiments and, and maybe kind of design some examples here. So the final topic I think we'll cover today is just kind of a general sense of, of things to, to watch out for when doing stats. Statistics is a, a very exact science, but measurement itself is, is messy and full of errors. And sometimes just because you get a result for a particular study doesn't mean it's totally true. There you know, are, are lots of things that can go wrong along the way. So I think we'll, we'll touch on a few of those and, and talk about a few examples before we wrap up here. So one of the first things that we want to bring up is that basically it doesn't matter what stats you use if you did something wrong at the data collection stage. So if you remember back to that episode, and hopefully you've heard that episode before coming back to this one, we talked about this process of thinking about a study in terms of inputs, process, and outputs, right? And we talked about how the inputs are the most important part of your study, because ultimately it's going to be garbage in and garbage out. If you made some mistakes in how you collected your data or you didn't collect enough responses to actually have power and have a stable sample size for, for your analyses, it doesn't much matter what you do at the process stage. So just when you get to the process, when you get to picking your analyses, when you get to doing your statistics, you have to make sure you did everything right beforehand. But let's, let's also focus on some things to watch out for when actually doing your analysis. Like uh, something you need to think about is the importance of replication. Like don't treat your one study and your, and your analysis as the be all end all, like you've definitively answered the question. No study can really, that's why we avoid the, the word prove. I think I, I might've said it once or twice because it, it's tempting to, to use, but no single study proves something. Relationships and, and effect are, are established and proven over time through replication. It's an important principle of science. So that's that's something to watch out for is that, and this kind of goes into our our upcoming episode on, on uh, data visualization and communication. Don't claim too much from your analysis. Replication is is an important thing to do. Um, so if it, if it worked once, maybe try it again. If it, if it didn't work and you think that there might be a reason why it didn't work, try and replicate or reproduce your study or, or change something potentially and keep track of what you've changed. Definitely. And, and I think kind of along these lines of, of the replication issue and how important that is are issues of generalizability, right? The, the understanding that it doesn't matter, you know, what organization you conduct your study in or, or the industry, there are still lots of const constraints and context effects, right? That we're not necessarily accounting for, which is why replication is so important, right? We want to have an understanding that whatever this relationship is that we're interested in engagement with job performance, that it holds within the context that we care about, right? So if you're only interested in that relationship within the manufacturing industry, well, then you wanna make sure that you're looking and you're conducting studies across different manufacturing organizations. Maybe you wanna generalize that even broader, right? To basically all workplaces. We, will, we wanna make sure that we've conducted studies across different kinds of workplaces across industries in order to make sure that the relationship is similar and, and that we're getting similar results every time. Yeah, and that's why meta-analyses are so helpful. Um, this is, this is a case of where 
we use stats and like fancy statistical corrections to kind of <laughs> smooth over the differences between studies. But um, meta-analyses, we, we've mentioned these in, in previous episodes as well. It's, it's basically a, a study of studies. You know, it's, it's combining everything together to try and um, understand the, the true relationship um, overall that generalizes across multiple different settings. And, and something to remember is that even though often in the podcast, when we talk about broad topics in the workplace, we tend to talk about meta-analyses that looked at, you know, dozens of studies conducted by many different researchers. And they kind of all are brought together to, like Nick said, to smooth things over and get a picture of what the actual effect might be. You can also do a meta-analysis with just a few studies that you conducted yourself. So if you've done two or three engagement surveys within your organization, you could actually meta-analyze those things, right? It's a, it's a little complex, um, but there are resources out there for you to learn how to do a meta-analysis. And when you do that within the, the studies that you conducted yourself within your organization, you're going to be able to at least generalize from those three studies to what the real or the smoothed over effect, like Nick said, accounting for all those, those issues of conducting your study within that context, right? So there is value to, to meta-analysis as well there. So I think that's all we have for today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We know that there's quite a bit of content in these episodes and they can be a bit overwhelming, but think about them in terms of immersing yourself, just being exposed to these ideas. You can always return to these episodes and kind of listen to specific parts again, and we'll make sure to do some good time stamping for you if you want to jump around a bit. And there are lots of resources online um, for you to kind of go out and, and, and learn a little bit more about these individual techniques. One of these resources is kind of a, a more fun one that we want to point you to. And this is a website uh, put together by Tyler Vegan. It's a really interesting website on spurious correlations. So Tyler has actually compiled a ton of data out there and allows you to look at a bunch of different interesting correlations that are entirely spurious, that there's basically no reason why these should be that strong, but they're really good examples of, of the kinds of things you can stumble upon. And if you didn't know they were spurious, you might interpret causally. So one of the things that we want you to do is go on there, find something that's interesting for you, and, and think about what, what kind of causal interpretation you might make if you didn't know that these were spurious correlations. Yeah, and the make your own correlation part of the website is, is interesting. You've got a whole bunch of data sets loaded in there, um, and you can pick a data source and then find another one, and it will automatically identify the highest correlations for you. So one of my favorite ones that I found there was uh, Apple stock price on January 1st um, has a negative 0.76 correlation with deaths caused by lightning. Basically, Apple's stock price goes up and deaths caused by lightning go down, which I guess means that app... Because as we know, Apple has been investing in the lightning protection industry quite a bit. So they're, they're really making strides. Yeah, exactly. It's saving, <laughs> it's saving, saving the world. Well, another slightly more serious uh, resource that we've put on here is that Nick is actually going to link you to an article on statistical fallacies and how to avoid them. It's a really interesting article. And I think the best thing about it is it's open to everybody. So you don't have to pay anything if you're not gated by having access to these really expensive academic articles. And it's really well written in terms of the heading it provides. That's the thing that I enjoyed the most about it. It kind of presents the issue. It tells you how to avoid that issue. And it leads you to some additional resources if you want to keep reading. Yeah, it talks about some of the stuff that we referred to in the episode, like small sample sizes, um, spurious correlations, and it, it describes all that. It's it's very clearly laid out and tells you how to identify it, describes the problem, and then and what to do about it as well. As always, uh, you can always reach out to us on Twitter at MindYourWork.io or send us an email at MindYourWorkPodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear feedback about these. If you would like an in-depth episode about something we covered today, we're happy to do that as well. Um, just let us know.
Or alternatively, if you want us to chill out and not talk about stats so much, also last time. Definitely. We're happy to, to talk about anything um, that you're interested in, as long as it's about work. Last but not least, you can find our other episodes um, on our website at mindyourwork.io. I'm Jose. I'm Nicholas. And we'll see you soon. I'm Jose Espinoza. I'm Nicholas Bremner. And you're listening to Mind Your Work. Oh, this is when I come in and finish it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, okay. it's, it's, it's written right there on the script. Oh, yeah. Okay.